Let's pray as we come to God's word. When trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near. Too far a faith worth more than gold, and there his faithfulness is told. Father, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the incredible grace that you have shown us in Christ, help us to better understand these truths as we face our trials. To the glory of your name, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Just over 12 years ago, some of my extended family suffered one of the most painful experiences a family can really ever face. My uncle, who had been a church minister and a rather public Christian figure for many years, walked out on my auntie and my three cousins. He left them to be with another man whom he had been secretly involved with many years before. It was made very public, as I said, he was a, a rather public uh, Christian minister, and those who simply knew, who knew him well were just simply lost for words. And yet, as, as difficult it was for the church to uh, cope with that scandal and that tragedy, it was nothing compared to the pain that my auntie and my three cousins had to endure over the ensuing months and years. The husband, the father whom they had known and loved and depended on for all those years had now abandoned them. I'm sure many of us here have felt the pain of being betrayed at some point, possibly not to the extent that my auntie has, but in other smaller but still painful ways someone whom we counted as a close friend gossiping about us or breaking our confidence. We've shared something very sensitive with them, but they haven't kept their word and they've shared it with others. A member of our family mistreating us or disowning us or betraying us because they no longer like what we stand for or what we believe. It might be that there are some here tonight who have suffered the pain of betrayal of a spouse, uh, the pain that comes with a broken marriage for adultery. How should we respond as Christians when we have to endure that kind of immense pain and suffering? Well, this evening we're looking at Psalm 55, where King David of Israel laments over his own great suffering and pain. He does so with a wonderful purpose, though. Psalm 55 has been recorded because in it not only does David recount his own painful experience and suffering, but he also teaches his people how to deal with the burdens that they carry as the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, the prescript reads, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. So, unlike last week, we saw Psalm 51, uh, this psalm doesn't give us a clue as to what the historical context to it actually is. We don't know what situation in particular David is crying out from in this psalm. But it's certainly based on one of the darkest days 
of his reign. He starts by setting the mood for us as he cries out to God for mercy. Come with me to Psalm 55, verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. David is as low as a man can get at this point. See in verse 2 that he is restless. He cannot find peace. He cannot find rest. He's had many, many sleepless nights. And his speech is full of complaint and moaning and groaning. Because verse 3, of the noise of his enemies, it's probably referring to their speech, their slanders, their hateful words against him as king. We're told they drop trouble upon him. Another translation that I think better uh, gets to the, uh, the original words there is, they bring misery crashing down upon me. It's the language of war, only David is speaking of it in the terms of his own personal anguish. And these enemies, they harbour a terrible grudge against him. That only fuels their anger, it just keeps their hatred hot. With David's words, they get more and more depressing. Verse 4, he says that his heart is in anguish within him. And the word for, for anguish there, I guess, the closest thing we could describe it in terms of pain would be a writhing pain. I don't know if any of us here have been unfortunate enough to have had kidney stones in the past, I did, sadly. Uh, back in 2010, I'd taken a nice little trip with my wife, Melissa, to Redung just before starting work back here, uh, coming back over from London. And on the way back, we got on the coach and um, stopped halfway at a rest stop. I had a Ramley burger, which is never a good idea. Got back onto the coach, and as we continue going down, I felt the pain in my lower back. I thought, well, it's probably food poisoning, it's probably the Ramley burger. But five days later, I decided it definitely wasn't food poisoning. And so I was taken uh, rather ill to the hospital at Sunway. And they did this x-ray and ultrasound. Uh, and they came back and they saw these three huge stones that had blocked up my right kidney. No doubt due to over excess of coffee and not enough water while sitting under the sun. That experience, the pain that followed, both in the relief and the treatment, the breaking down of those stones, well, that whole experience gave me a new appreciation for the term writhing in pain. It was excruciating, and it was long, uh, and I'm glad it's over with. Well, that is how David feels in his heart, emotionally, right now as the horror of his enemy's threats just overwhelm him to the point that he feels like death is just waiting for him at the door. It is so bad that he wishes he could just get up out of his life and walk away. 
just escape to this wilderness that he speaks of, the, the desert for him, a barren land. Even that place in his mind holds hope for him compared to what he is facing here. Verse 6. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David would rather escape to a barren land than continue to endure the pain he was feeling as he sat on the throne in Jerusalem. But he knew he couldn't do that. He knew that abandoning his post would have meant shirking his responsibilities as the king of Israel, as God's king for his people of the time. Abandoning those people whom God had put under him for him to care for and protect. So for David, escaping his pain by running away would have meant sin in this situation. I wonder what about us? In what ways are we tempted to take a sinful escape in order to avoid or relieve our suffering and pain? Here are a few scenarios. Uh, Our marriage or our courtship is really hard. We haven't been getting on very well with our spouse or our fiancé. So we just slowly start to flirt with another member at church. Uh, one who makes us feel the way that our spouse or our fiancé made us used to make us feel. And we're sure it won't lead to anything, yet so often, sadly, it does. Taking the sinful escape of adultery to relieve our sorrow in a relationship. Maybe stress at work is unbearable. Our boss is so tough on us. The deadlines, they're always looming. Every morning you go into work and there's just a whole pile of work there which you know you won't be able to get done in time. And you know you'll just be scolded for failing to hit that deadline, for failing to do adequate work in your boss's eyes. You just want to forget about all of it for one night, for that just that one Friday night. You want it to all go away. And the alcohol And the drugs offer that quick fix that you're so desperate for so you can just forget about all of it. Just for a night. Of course, those same same excess of drinking and those drugs cause you to lose all self-control. You end up behaving in ways you wouldn't normally dream of and hurting those who love you, whom you are closest to. Escaping our pain and our suffering at work through substance abuse. I'm so depressed with just life in general. I just don't feel content with the way things are going, with what, what I have anymore. I just need to get that new car and those new clothes and go on that new holiday with my new travel bags before I come back to my new work with my new friends. Of course, soon enough we realise that those new friends become a further source of our problems and pain. Escaping through greed materialism and idolatry. Or maybe our tendency is not to take the sinful escape to get away from our hardships, rather we want to get even. We're tempted to retaliate against those who cause us suffering. 
So that boss that treats you so harshly, well, you decide to usurp him whenever you can. Won't do a proper job. You'll leave work early whenever you can, whenever he's not looking. Friend gossips about us, so we just decide to gossip back. They make up something about us, we make up something about them. They say something that's true and sensitive, we tell others about something that's true and sensitive about them. Our family lets us down in a big way, so we refuse to be there for them the next time, so they can know something of our pain. Well, whether it's taking that that sinful escape to avoid our hardship, or retaliating against those who cause us to suffer, neither of those options for us as Christians will lead us to honouring God or bring us the lasting peace that we desire. Let me just clarify something here as we talk about escaping problems in a sinful way. That there will be situations in life when the right and godly thing to do is to get out. When the right and godly thing to do is to remove yourself from a situation that is harming you. If we're suffering from an abusive marriage, then separation until that issue is resolved, if it can be, could certainly be the wise and godly thing to do. Not saying that you can never be justified in escaping your hardships. But that is not the situation that David is addressing in this psalm. What we have here in verses 6 to 8 is the temptation to escape in a sinful way when we know we shouldn't when we know what it means to be faithful is to remain where we are. And David doesn't give in to that temptation. Instead, thankfully, on this occasion, he approaches his pain in a godly, constructive way. All the way back in verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me, I am restless in my complaint and I moan. David brings his complaints and his moaning to God in prayer. That's the first thing he does. That's his first response. And he doesn't try to hide the uh, the frustration. He doesn't try and hide the darkness of his situation. He's real with God about the way he's feeling in the moment. And there's absolutely no indication in this psalm that that is an unfaithful thing to do. It is somehow unfaithful for David to moan and complain in his prayers to God. Friends, there is a right and there is a proper place as we pray to our Heavenly Father in the midst of incredibly hard times to be pouring out our frustrations and our deep sorrow and even our moaning and groaning to him. You know, I used to think that was wrong as a Christian. I used to think that that kind of prayer was off limits. In times when I was suffering, I'd be very careful not to mention anything too negative that was going on in my life and in my heart at that point in time. I'd just give thanks for the things that I felt were going well. I'd ask for the usual provisions. Lord, give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sins. Lead me not into temptation. But when it came to those really painful matters that were weighing me down and that I was incredibly discontent about, now as far as I was concerned, I mustn't take that to God. That's clearly not the way I should be praying. Because I thought that even if I, even if I mentioned anything along those lines, any sense of discontentment, any sense of groaning and moaning and pain at our situations, 
I'd be unfaithful. I'd be somehow questioning God's perfect sovereign plan for me. I'd come across as unthankful and belligerent and unfaithful. And I was wrong, friends. This psalm proves that I was wrong in that. David's lament shows us that there is a right place for crying out to God and sharing with him exactly how we feel in our hearts. Being honest with our Heavenly Father. There is a way to do that in faith, as we will see. But before we do see that, we're going to take a closer look at David and his experience and see just why he is so sorrowful at this point in time. We're looking at verses 9 to 15 now. Uh, David makes two pleas, two requests of desperation to the Lord. Uh, And they form bookends, if you like, to uh, uh, a description of his pain and anguish, which we're told in far, far more detail. So you've got one plea in verse 9 and one plea in verse 15, and then in between his description of why he is in such bitter turmoil. So we're going to focus on the pain, David's pain first, and then we will come to his pleas and his faith in a moment. So read with me from verse 9b, halfway through verse 9. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Now these words would have sent a chill down the spine of any Israelite that had just picked up this psalm for the first time and started reading. Because you see, it's possible, at least up to verse 9, to think that David is talking about some enemy that is far away from a foreign nation that's causing him harm. There would have been nothing really extraordinary about that. Israel had plenty of enemies. They might wonder, well, is it the Philistines or the Edomites or some other people this time? Clearly, David, he's just in anguish over an enemy attack and the pain that he's enduring. But now here in verse 9, things turn really sour as it becomes more and more clear that the source of David's anguish is just so much closer to home. He speaks of the city in verse 9, in which he sees violence and strife, social anarchy, a a total lack of justice, especially for the less fortunate. Uh, Wicked men are said to be walking around the city walls, the perimeter, And then within the city itself, there is nothing but ruin. Oppression and fraud is the permanent agenda for the marketplace where all the trading is done. You think Patarling Street is bad? It was a paradise compared to this. Slowly but surely, Israel come to realise that David their king is in anguish and he is pointing the finger of blame directly at them. David's own people and David's own city of Jerusalem. Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Corruptio 
optimi, pessimi. It's a very famous Latin phrase. Does anyone know Latin here? Anyone have a guess at what that means? Corruptio, optimi, pessimi. I'm sorry if my pronunciation is terrible. Anyone? Okay. It means corruption of the best is the worst. Corruption of the best is the worst. It was a saying that supposedly dates back to ancient Rome when an emperor was betrayed by one closest to him. So think of Julius Caesar being betrayed by Brutus, being stabbed in the back, even though Brutus was his closest ally, his closest counsellor. Well, this is the phrase they would use, corruptio optimi pessimi. Corruption of the best is the worst. And that is what David was experiencing here. A betrayal on the part of those who were closest to him. Those who had one time been the very best in his eyes. His most loyal, his most faithful subjects. Those he trusted, those he took counsel with, those he worshipped with in the temple, in the throng. A close, confidant and friend whom he respected and who held a high rank in Israel. And yet now, this person had turned on him. Now, there was nothing but taunts and plots for David's destruction. They had rejected David as their king. And for David, being betrayed by such a close companion was unbearable. I mean, to be attacked by an enemy, that would have been not so nice, but sort of, yeah, that's the everyday, that's what happens when you're a king of a nation. Israel had plenty of enemies, and David had a lovely army to take care of those problems when they arose. But this was mutiny on the part of those whom he knew. So he couldn't so easily hide from them. These people intimately involved in his life who had now betrayed him. So with all that pain and all that anguish from such a great and personal betrayal, he takes his plea to the Lord. We see those pleas in verses 9 and 15, David's plea. He prays to God that God would deal with these traitors in the same way that God had dealt with the wicked in the past. We'll see that. Verse 9, first of all. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. He calls out to God to bring this new enemy's wicked plans to nothing. He's using the language of Babel, Genesis 11, where the Lord confused the languages of humanity when we united against him in a pitiful display of rebellion. And God confused our languages in order that we would not be able to unite in the same way again in order that our wickedness might be restrained. Well, now David calls that to mind here, that the wickedness of his enemies, these traitors, would be restrained. Their plans would come to nothing. And then verse 15, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. It sounds quite harsh, doesn't it? Let them go down to Sheol, the grave, alive. I don't know about you, but for me, being buried alive is probably just about number one on my list of worst ways to die. Okay, being buried alive. Really don't want to go out that way. 
And yet David isn't being unusually cruel here. He's using his words again very carefully because he wants to bring to mind in Israel's mind, in the Israel who were reading this psalm and singing this psalm, another time from their history, another judgment from another rebellion during the Exodus, when God delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and started to lead them to the land that he had promised through his chosen servant and leader for his people, Moses. And on the way, a group that rise out of the Israelite company challenge Moses' authority. A group of men led by Korah. You can uh, read about it in Numbers 16 for those taking notes. Well, Moses prays to God for relief from that situation. And the following day, God answers in a big way. He tells Moses, separate yourself from these people. And then he causes the ground to open up beneath Korah's allies. And they all perish. They literally go down to the grave alive. Well, David is alluding to that judgment here because history itself is repeating again in this psalm. David is now in Moses' position. He is now the leader of Israel. He is now God's chosen king for them. And now David himself is suffering a rebellion, a mutiny, by those under him, by his own subjects. So he's asking that this judgment that before Korah were before them as well. But just like Moses, David's response to this tragic situation is to entrust himself to God in prayer. And as we look at his prayer of faith that he calls out to the Lord, we're going to see three reasons why David puts his confidence in God rather than his confidence in any other sinful action. Three reasons. Firstly, the God of David is willing and able to hear. The Lord will hear him. Have a look in verse 16. We're going to be moving around the psalm a bit here between verses 16 and 19, so bear with me. Verse 16. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. And then verse 19, God will give ear and humble them. David's first instinct in response to his suffering is to pray to God because he knows that God is there and he knows that God is listening to him and that he will hear David. Now, I'm a big fan of uh, action thriller films, uh, the cheesier ones the better. Um, one I saw a little while ago was Deep Impact. Can you put your hand up? Have you seen Deep Impact? Okay, Leon has, good, Mike has, a few of you. Alright, uh, let me just basically describe the, the ridiculous plot line. It's an end of the world movie, a meteorite the size of New York is heading on a collision course with Earth, everyone's going to die, and so the world nations, they all get together, the leaders get together, and they have to work out a way to save the planet. And so they think of all these ingenious ways to try and stop this asteroid from hitting Earth. And uh, they commit themselves to a plan to somehow blow it up, and the plan goes wrong. And it looks like everything is lost. There's no hope now. So eventually, we're quite a long way into the film now, eventually, 
the president of the US, uh, it was played by Morgan Freeman, which is why if you ever saw that picture on the screen, um, the president of the US gets onto TV, he addresses the nation, and he explains, hey guys, the world's going to end, that kind of thing. And at the very end, his final words are, pray. Pray that we would be delivered. You can tell that things are really desperate in a US Hollywood film if people are addressing the nation and telling them to pray. Sadly, you know, we as Christians can be guilty of adopting that same attitude in the midst of our sufferings. We act first and we think of lots and lots of possible solutions but one of the last things that's on our minds is prayer. I need to take this crisis, this burden, this suffering to God in prayer and commit it into his hands that he might give me grace and wisdom and sustain me. Well, David's attitude is the absolute opposite. When facing this suffering, the first thing he does in this psalm is cry out to God. And now here again he emphasises his reliance on the Lord by praying. To him and calling on him. David knew that the Lord was willing to listen and able to hear him. It's not as if we have to wait until the situation becomes truly out of control before we take it to the Lord in prayer. I think we can often think that it's got to get so bad before God can even be bothered to listen and do anything about that problem. But The Lord that we trust in is the Lord of both the small and the big things. Secondly, David's God is able to save. David's God is able to save. Verse 16 again, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Verse 18, He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. David knew that whatever should befall him, he was secure in the Lord. Even if his enemies somehow managed to take his very life, David's soul was safe. It would be redeemed. In the midst of all of his suffering and his great sorrow, he still has eternity in mind. He's looking at the big picture, the long run. Isn't it true of us so often that when we face a brick wall, when we are feeling great anguish, the walls of our lives just close in on us and we can't see anything else but that problem and we can't see past that problem. And so we despair. We just say, I've had enough, it's over. Because we forget about the big picture. I've heard testimonies of Christians who have suffered far greater ways than I have. And yet with great contentment because they know that one way or another way whatever should befall them they are secure even if they lose their lives for whatever reason eternity in God's rest is waiting for them David trusts in the Lord because the Lord is his salvation and he knows that the Lord is able to save thirdly David's God is able to judge David's God is able to judge. Have a look in verse 19 again. God will give ear and humble them. 
He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. David knows that his Lord holds the very highest authority at all times, in all situations. He he describes the Lord as the one enthroned from of old. Basically, absolute authority for eternity. And somehow, David also knows that these enemies that are causing him such great pain will never repent. They will never change their ways. They will never turn back from their evil. They will continue to defy God by defying his king to the bitter end. And so David says, God will humble them. God will humble them. He will judge. And that certain judgment gives David the confidence as he suffers. Even if he can't bring these wicked men to justice in his lifetime, the Lord will ensure that justice is done at the end of the day. Now, friends, we can and I think we should in, in, in situations seek justice when someone commits heinous crimes against us or against those whom we love. It's right that that kind of problem is dealt with properly. And God can and he does execute his justice through the laws of this land. But sometimes justice just isn't possible. Sometimes justice just doesn't come. Whether it's corruption, partiality, or a refusal to confess. But one way or another, many people do not receive the justice that they think they deserve in this life. David was consoled by the fact that God would ultimately right every wrong in the end. And friends, we can have this consolation too as Christians, that God will hear us, that he will ultimately save, and he will judge. Not through David, but through the greater David, to whom, of course, this psalm points, our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, who experienced this psalm in the most profound way for us, so that David's Lord might be our Lord. So that we might become his own precious people whom he cares deeply for. And we read of how Jesus embodies this psalm in his own experience in Mark 14, in our New Testament reading. Feel free to flick there if you want to. I'm not going to quote or read out any of the verses, but if you want to remind yourselves, you can. It's Mark 14, 32 to 50. And here, Mark describes for us Jesus' pain, Jesus' plea, and Jesus' faith, all done in love for his Father and for us. It's the night before the crucifixion, and after sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gets down on his knees in great sorrow and anguish, and he pours out his pain to God in prayer. Jesus knew he was about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners by one of his own disciples. And so there in the garden, Jesus was in his hour of greatest need. Just like David in this psalm. So he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The suffering that he would endure would be far greater than anything that David or we here today will ever face. He knew that his betrayal 
would lead not only to his death, but being cut off from the Father whom he had loved and known and whom had loved him and been known by since before time itself. Being cut off from the eternal Father whom he had known perfectly. The breaking of that relationship. And that's where the real pain is for Jesus. He would go to the cross for us. And he would do so according to his Father's plan to take the punishment for our sin. For the ways in which we have committed mutiny against our Lord and our God by following our sinful desires. By pretending that we are the rulers of our own lives and rejecting God's will and intention for us. Rather than honouring and loving our God as creator and Lord as we should. Jesus knew that he had to suffer hell for us and for the glory of his Father. And yet, in the garden, as he prays this prayer in desperation, that the cup might be taken from him, he finishes, not my will but yours be done. He is faithful to the bitter end. And then he tells his disciples, rise, let us go from here. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas, of course, his own disciple, one of the inner twelve, one of his close companions, whom he had walked with, whom he had taught, whom he had even sent out to share the gospel in places where he had ministered, one who had been sitting around that table that evening, who shared in the Last Supper, that, that supper that symbolised, above all things, fellowship with Jesus. And but that same disciple now betrays him with a kiss identifying him to the soldiers who would take Jesus to his trial and then on to the cross. But death and the grave could not hold him, of course. He was without sin. He was faithful to God in every way that we have failed. Lovingly submitted to his father's will in every way and so his father delivered him as his righteous one through death, by raising him to new life, three days later, by vindicating his son and exalting him and placing him in the highest authority as Lord of all creation. So that now, as we recognise Jesus as our Lord and the Saviour whom God in his grace and his mercy has given for us, that we might be spared the judgment on our sins. Well, as we do that, we are forgiven, we are reconciled to the God of David, and so we know that he will hear us when we pray to him because of what Christ has done, because Jesus dealt with the sins that kept us from knowing God at the cross and then rose to new life and ascended and is now at the right hand of the Father, pleading on our behalf and interceding for us. We know that God will one day deliver us from all the pain and suffering that we endure as his people in this world. Because Jesus' resurrection is the proof of the new life that we look forward to in him. Of the resurrection to eternal life. We know through Jesus that God will judge by the Son he raised. 
and he will right every wrong on that final day. We know all that is true because of Christ and his death and resurrection for us. We have all those promises now as God's people. So we have all the more reason to pay attention to the application that David makes finally in this psalm, in the light of all of his suffering and all of his anguish and all of his pain, this is his decision. And this is what he promotes Israel to do when they face the same. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. David says, take your burden, whatever it might be, small or great, and cast it like a net onto God. And burden here, it's a really broad word. It could mean uh, your cares, your concerns, your grief. Whether it be small or great, throw it to the Lord in prayer. And as we do, so faithfully, we have that promise that he in return will sustain us by his grace. David doesn't say, cast your burdens on the Lord and that will be the end of your burdens. He doesn't say, cast your burdens on the Lord and you'll never know suffering again. Rather, he says, God will sustain you. He will never allow his righteous to be removed, which is what we now are in Christ. This is the promise that we have through faith in Jesus. That as we take our sorrows to God in prayer, he will sustain us. He will grant us the grace and the wisdom that we require to remain faithful no matter what we're facing as we await our salvation when Christ returns. As for David's enemies, well, he leaves them to the Lord's judgment. You see that in verse 23. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. And that's what happened to Judas, who betrayed God's ultimate king, Jesus. He lived not half his days before he went to destruction. It begs the question, what about those who oppose us as God's people today? How are we to respond? Well, friends, we are to love them as Christ loved us when we were still his enemies. Because we are not God's king. David had that role. Jesus fulfilled that role. That's not our role. We are saved in the king. So it's not our place to pray judgment upon others when they hurt us. But if such people do persist in hating God by causing his people to suffer, well, whether they claim to be Christian or not, one day we still have the hope and can trust that God will judge and that God will right every single wrong committed. And there is consolation for us in the midst of our sorrow in that. David doesn't finish on a word of judgment, thankfully. See at the end of verse 23, this high, high note. But I will trust in you. I will trust in you. And friends, this is the key. This is how we can and should take our sorrows and anguish and pain that weighs us down to God in prayer by trusting him with it. We can be honest with our pain as we resolve to trust the Lord in our pain 
as we resolve to trust the Lord in our pain. As we pray in faith, as we remember his love and faithfulness to us in Christ. Unquestionable. Well, brothers and sisters, God says today, cast your burdens upon me and I will sustain you. For my auntie that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this sermon, I trust it's been nothing short than the grace of God that sustained her through such a bitter trial. As she cried out to the Lord in her grief and in her sorrow, and in spite of the great anguish of being abandoned by the husband whom she had known for more than 20 years, she is still trusting in Christ to this day and looking forward to her salvation in him. And that is nothing short of God's grace. I'm going to give us all a moment to reflect on this psalm for ourselves now. And can I encourage you, if there is a burden that has been weighing on your heart, that maybe the Lord has really brought to mind as you've been hearing him speak by his word, then would you take that to him in prayer over these next few minutes as we sit here quietly? Can I encourage you to use this opportunity to do that, to resolve to trust the Lord with that burden, whatever it might be, small or great, and ask him to fulfill that promise of sustaining you in it. We'll do that now.